right. Open up your catechism to. Why should I mark this? Um, page uh, 49. Well, that's my old page number. So, actually, go to paragraph 285. You guys know how to turn to the paragraph? If you have a compendium, the compendium follows it, but not exactly. It kind of gives the overall thing. So, yes. In the references, mm-hmm. Lumen Gentium. Now, November 21st, 1964, That's one of the documents of Vatican II. Oh, it's one of the documents. Yeah, so you can look up Lumen Gentium online and download that if you like. Yeah. Okay. What page? Open where? Paragraph Right there in bold. Do you have your own translation of the Catechism too, and you go with the official one? I go with the official one. That's an inside joke. Okay, paragraph 101 sessions. Raise your hands. Admit it. A few, not too many. So listen, what you can do if you want, you can go online and you can listen. Just what do we have? Four classes or five classes? Go on that and listen to that. It's a nice thing to do, just to take kind of get up to speed. What we did in Catechism 101 in our first series was just cover that first section, the introductory section of the Catechism, which talked about. God's revelation to us and our response of faith to Him. Okay? And so we went over that in some detail, and you can listen to that online. The next section of the Catechism is the Creed. The following section is going to be on prayer, the sacraments, alright? The sacraments. Okay, and so on. We're going to go through these sections of the creed, dealing with each in its proper place. And unfortunately, we don't have a lot of time. It would be nice to have a whole semester to talk about God the Father, or a whole semester talking about the creed at least. But uh, we don't. We have one night to talk about God the Father. That's bad. Just before the just before paragraph 185 on the page previous to it. Okay, you'll see at the top, the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed. Turn back one page so you get the beginning of that. You'll see the credo. We turn one page back. You see that? The reason I'm not telling you a page number is we all have different page numbers, so we have different editions. You see that? The Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed? What's the difference? Nicene Creed. <laughs> what, else, what else is different? One is I, the other is we. We and the Nicene Creed proceeds from the Father ends. <laughs> the Nicene Creed is longer. It's a later creed. And in fact, it's not called 
the Nicene Creed. It's not the technical name for it. What we're going to find out is it's the Nicene Constantinopolitan Creed. Okay? From two different councils. The Council of? Nicaea and Constantinople. Okay? The Council of Nicaea dealt with the issues of the Father and the Son, and the, and the Council of Constantinople added the section on the Holy Spirit. Okay? And so we have, in the, in the creed that you say at Mass every Sunday, is a conglomeration, a bringing together of two different, really, two different, uh, the uh, declarations of two different councils. Okay? The Apostles' Creed is just what it says. The Apostles' Creed. It goes back in the memory of the church to darkness. We don't know. It comes from the earliest days of the church. And we can't identify who exactly wrote it. Okay? It was handed on. And it's based upon the scriptures themselves and the earliest creed found in the scriptures, which is what? The Shema. Oh, right. Uh, okay, New Testament. Sorry. You're right, Hashem. New Testament. Even the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Yeah, go out and baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Okay? From that, the doxology, from that declaration of our Lord, we have the Apostles' Creed, we have the Nicene Creed. All creeds are based upon that revelation because that revelation of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is the highest revelation of all. Okay, and if we can understand that truth, which is a mystery, and ultimately we can't understand it until we stand before the face of God, all things will fall into place. Okay, so the more we study about the Trinity, the more we're going to understand the rest of our faith. Do these... Uh Additions to the creed come about because of the heresies that are exactly. prevalent at the time, or exactly. And we're going to read here in a second. Anything more than the Apostles' Creed? Yeah. What you'll notice as you're reading through the creed, the Apostles' Creed, at least, there's a lot of stuff missing. In fact, the Nicene Creed, there's a lot of stuff missing there too. A lot of stuff that we believe in that are not that's not there. Okay. The creed is the summation, the symbol of our faith in a shortened form. It doesn't have every detail about the faith. And in fact, as we're going to talk about tonight, there's a major detail which the Nicene Creed doesn't have at all originally. And has been a cause of a major division in the church. Okay? So the creed is simply a summation for us, point by point, of the basics of the faith. All right. Why don't we go ahead and read as an introduction, and I don't usually read this long of a section, but we'll, we'll read a, a couple pages here of this uh, introduction to the Creed from paragraph 185. Melanie, you want to read that for us? Paragraph 185, and then we're only going to skip one paragraph. I want to read the rest of it, so just go ahead and I'll tell you when to stop. Okay. Whoever says I believe says, I pledge myself to what we believe. Communion and faith meet needs a common language of faith, normative for all, and uniting all in the same confession of faith. From the beginning, the apostolic church expressed and handed on her faith in brief formulae for all. But already early on, the church also wanted to gather the essential elements of its faith into organic and articulated summaries intended especially for candidates of baptism. The synthesis of faith was not made to accord with human opinions, but rather what what was of the greatest importance was gathered from all the scriptures to present the one teaching of the faith in its entirety. 
And just as the mustard seed contains a great number of branches in a tiny grain, so too this summary of faith encompassed in a few words the whole knowledge of the true religion contained in the Old and the New Testaments. Such syntheses are called professions of faith, since they summarize the faith that Christians profess. They are called creeds on account of what is usually their first word in Latin, credo, I believe. They are also called symbols of faith. Okay, just a quick note. When you're in Mass and you chant the credo at, at the Latin Mass, how does it start? Who wants to sing it for us, the first line? We're going to have a fire practice here someday. Okay. But when you say it in English, what do you say? Do you say I believe? We believe. We believe. Okay, the translation into the English is what you might say is not an, actually a pure, uh, a literal translation of the text. And it's caused some argument among traditionalists who say, hey, we should be saying, if we're going to say this in English, we should be saying an accurate translation of it. Okay? But it's important to note in the Catechism, notice that in the first paragraph, I believe, where it says, uh, I pledge myself to what we believe. Yeah, there you go. I pledge myself to what we believe. In some sense, the catechism is answering the charge because in reality, when we say, I believe, I believe only in relationship to the church as the body of Christ. Our faith is a faith which Jesus Christ gives us. And so it's only in him that we say, I believe. And when I say, I believe, I believe as Jesus Christ. And within Jesus Christ is the gift of himself in the body of Christ. There is a multitude of people. So we can both say, I believe and we believe. And we don't, there's no heresy or anything like that involved. In fact, it kind of points to two different aspects of the reality that we're looking at. But in the Latin, indeed, it does say credo. Did you say I have a question, Lewis? No. No. Okay. So, and it's possible that that translation will be changed at some point. Okay, let's keep going, Molly. The Greek word symbolon meant half of a broken object. For example, a seal presented as a token of recognition. The broken parts were placed together to verify the bearer's identity. The symbol of faith, then, is a sign of recognition and communion between believers. Symbolon also means a gathering, collection, or summary. A symbol of faith is a summary of the principal truths of the faith and therefore serves as the first and fundamental point of reference for catechesis. The first profession of faith is made during baptism. The symbol of faith is first and foremost a baptismal creed. Since baptism is given in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, the truths of faith professed during baptism are articulated in terms of their reference to the three persons of the Holy Trinity. And so the creed is divided into three parts. Okay, pay attention to this, because the three, the three parts are the main parts that we're going to have to deal with over the next couple of classes. Go ahead. The first part speaks of the first divine person and the wonderful work of creation. The next speaks of the second divine person and the mystery of his redemption of men. The final part speaks of the third divine person, the origin and the source of our sanctification. These are the three chapters of our baptismal seal. Okay, you can skip the next paragraph, 192. Through the centuries, many professions or symbols of faith have been articulated in response to the needs of the different eras. The creeds of the, di of the different apostolic and ancient churches, 
for example, the Quiquinque, which I have uh, printed off for you guys, the Athanasian Creed. Okay, I printed that off. Take that home, read it on your own, okay? The professions of faith of certain councils, such as Toledo, Lateran, Lyon, Trent, or the symbols of certain popes. For example, the Fides Damasi, or the Credo of the People of God of Paul VI. None of the creeds from the difference... Oh, that's a typo. You're right. Okay. Different stages in the church's life can be considered superseded or irrelevant. They help us today to attain and deepen the faith of all times by means of the different summaries made of it. Okay, that's extremely important because as we, as we go through the creed, we are going to be staring at the greatest mystery of the faith, the Holy Trinity. Okay? And like I said, and I'll probably say many times... We're staring, in some sense, into darkness. And we rely upon God's revelation of himself, and we struggle to understand that revelation in human terms. But ultimately, we wait for the glory of God to behold his glory, to understand him properly. Okay? Or in all his fullness, and all his glory. And so the creed is an attempt by the church, and it's a true attempt. What it says is true, but it's not exhaustive. And so we never want to rely upon the creed as the exhausting the whole of the faith. Instead, we look at the creed as our guide into the mystery. Okay? And as I stand, as I prepared today, I, and I was telling Sheila earlier, I said, I don't know what I'm going to say tonight. Because, oh, I mean, what do I say? We're talking about the Trinity. We're talking about God. And ultimately... I have, we have to stand there and gaze upon the, his revelation to us. There's no you know, fancy thing I can say about it. Okay, So we stand there and we humble ourselves before the creed, accepting it and seeking to understand it more fully in human terms, which we're going to try to do some tonight. Okay, So go ahead. Among all the creeds, two occupy a special place in the church's life. The Apostles' Creed is so called because it is rightly considered to be a faithful summary of the Apostles' faith. It is the ancient baptismal symbol of the Church of Rome. Its great authority arises from this fact. It is the Creed of the Roman Church, the See of Peter, the first of the Apostles, to which he brought the common faith. The Niceno-Constantinopolitan Creed, or the Nicene Creed, draws its great authority from the fact that it stems from the first two ecumenical councils in 325 and 381. It remains common to all the great churches of both East and West to this day. Our presentation of the faith will follow the Apostles' Creed, which constitutes, as it were, the oldest Roman catechism. The presentation will be completed, however, by constant references to the Nicene Creed, which is often more explicit and more detailed. As on the day of our baptism, when our whole life was entrusted to the standard of teaching, let us embrace the creed of our life-giving faith. To say the credo with faith is to enter into communion with God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and also with the whole church which transmits the faith to us and in whose midst we believe. This creed is the spiritual seal, our heart's meditation, and an ever-present guardian. It is unquestionably the treasure of our soul. Okay. What it talks about there as the seal. In some sense, the creed we can understand as the measure of our lives. Why do I say that? Because the creed reveals to us certain truths, certain fundamental truths about God. We are made in the image and likeness of God. 
And so the creed represents for us, in some sense, a mirror of ourselves, of who we are supposed to be. The creed is the measure, as I say, the measure of our lives. And the more we are conformed to it, the more it becomes part of who we are, the more we will be true to what God wanted for us. Okay, oftentimes we recite, recite the creed as just some formula, something that's completely outside of us. But in reality, the creed, as I say, it is the revelation of God, which is the revelation of our true selves made in His image and likeness. Okay? We'll talk about that more. So first, I believe in God. Like I said, the, the Nicene Creed is what we use in church. And most of the time we say the Apostles' Creed when? During the Rosary. Right, so most of us are very familiar with it. I believe in God. The Catechism immediately supports the Apostles' Creed with the Nicene by saying that we believe in one God. And we believe in one God because of His revelation. Okay? Turn to Deuteronomy really quick. Deuteronomy chapter 6. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. When was, when was the book of Deuteronomy written? During what stage in Israel's life? Yeah, during the Exodus. Those two people. Come on, friends. We're going to do that Salvation History series again coming up. I already got it scheduled, so we're going to go over all that stuff. Okay? And Deuter the book of Deuteronomy was written as Israel stood on the banks of the Jordan River looking at the Holy Land after 40 years of exile. They were just about to enter the land of Canaan. Okay? And the book of Deuteronomy is written. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. Verse, sorry, chapter 6, verse... Yeah, verse 4. Melanie, I'll let you read again just because you mentioned this. I don't have a Bible. Oh. <laughs> Jennifer, you want to read? <laughs> Hear, O Israel, the Lord of God is one Lord, and you shall love the Lord God with all your hearts and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words which I command you this day shall be upon your heart. And you shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. And you shall bind them as a sign upon your hand, and they shall as frontlets between your eyes, and you shall write them on the doorposts of the house and on your gates. And when the Lord your God... Yeah, that's, that's good. That's kind of heavy. That's a lot of stuff. Saying, this is it. Teach your kids this, and this alone. This is what I want you to teach them. And what is it that he wants them to... Wants, what he wants taught? Ah, before that, there is one God, O Israel. There is one God. And why would this revelation be essential as Israel stood on the banks of the Jordan River? They were going to all these other lands that had gods. Exactly. They were leaving behind them paganism, and they were entering into a land to dwell in where paganism was rampant. And he says, if you are going to remember one thing, if you are going to hand on one thing to your children, it is that there is only one God, and all those other gods are false gods. They are not God at all. Turn real quick to Isaiah chapter 45. Isaiah 
Isaiah 45. Does anyone else need a Bible? Any other Bibles back there? We got an extra one. Come on, it's okay. Bring your Bibles that you got to bring your Bible everywhere you go. You do? I had another airplane with me. Unfortunately, I did. I tried. I tried. What's that? The problem is, I got a, I got a, uh, you know, a one-year-old that's crawling on me on one side, and the catechism trying to prepare for tonight on the other hand. It was tough. That wouldn't stop your brother. Chapter 45, verse 22, Jennifer. <laughs> Isaiah, yeah, chapter 45, verse 22. What is Isaiah? Isaiah, oh my. Isaiah, find, this, find Psalms and keep going. Yeah, Jennifer, go. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn from the mouth that's gone forth in righteousness, a word that shall not return. To me, every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear. Okay, again, Israel, the book of Isaiah, is both in exile to Babylon, okay, where paganism, again, is rampant, okay, and they're coming back to the Holy Land, where, again, the Babylonians had brought in all of their gods. So they're fighting this issue constantly. Okay, and that constant revelation that there is only one God. The Catechism notes two main references regarding this one God that's given in Scripture. The two key attributes of God that we know from sacred Scripture, which all the rest of the attributes rely upon. And they are what? What are the two key attributes of God that all the rest rely upon? It's right in your Catechism. Mm, part, partly right. Turn to your paragraph 215, Catechism 215. Okay, do you want to read it? Where's my left? Who's got a catechism on it? Steve, go ahead. 215? Okay. God is true. The sum of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous ordinances endures forever. And now, O Lord God, you are God, and your words are, are true. This is why God's promises always come true. God is truth himself, whose words cannot deceive. This is why one can abandon oneself in full trust to the truth and faithfulness of his word in all things. The beginning of sin and of man's fall was due to a lie or the tempter who induced doubt of God's word, kindness, and faithfulness. Okay, now... As we go through the catechism here, I should have said this at the beginning, I really want to encourage you guys to read because ultimately our success over the next five weeks that we're going to be there, four weeks that we're going to be together, is going to be based upon your preparation because you're going to get to paragraphs and say, what are they talking about? Okay? And the more we can say, what are they talking about, the more we're actually going to have something valuable to talk about. Okay? To discuss. <coughs> we can read that paragraph and just move on from it. But I don't want to do that. Because as we, as we look into the mystery of the Trinity, as we look into the mystery of God and the revelation given in Scripture, we look into the veiled heavens, into darkness, and something is revealed a little bit. God is truth. And unfortunately, in this life of ours, we, can't, we start reading it, and we're in a hurry, and we just keep reading. 
And we never ask ourselves what that really means. And that's where we're going to be able to gain our insights into the creed. Okay, to ask the basic fundamental questions about what the catechism is saying, what the revelation of God is saying, what the creed is saying. What is truth? What is truth? <coughs> I mean, you can't just go back to that. God is truth and truth is God. I mean, you're right, but we need to get something more that we can understand. What is truth? First of all, it puts us in the realm of what? Yeah, of knowledge. In the realm of knowledge. Something believable. Okay. Something is actual. Absolute. Okay. What else? Unchangeable. It's unchangeable. Confirmation okay. with reality. What's that? Confirmation with reality. Confirmation or conformation? Confirmation. Conformation with reality. Keep that in your head. Conformation with reality. What's that mean? That what that that which is true is that which is in reality the way it is. Okay. How about step back a second and say what is knowledge? We talked about this before. I've talked about this with you guys before a little bit. What is knowledge? What's it mean to know something? All right. Yeah. Plato. I think it's Plato. Says. Knowledge is the union of the knower and the known. How many times have I said that to you guys? Knowledge is the union of the knower and the known. So when I know something, I'm united with it. How is that the case? Take out real, I've done this with you guys before, some of you haven't been in here, so bear with me. If I know my truck, or I know my wife, or I know you, I can close my eyes and in, in, in this, I'm playing a little loose with, in, in, uh, philosophy here and epistemology, but you can close your eyes. If I know my truck, I can see my truck. Okay, close your eyes for a second. Look at your house. What's it look like? What's the front door look like? Okay, open your eyes. We are able, by the gift of knowledge, to reproduce in ourselves the thing out there in the world, a tree or whatever it is. God has given us a great gift to be able to do that. And unfortunately, again, we live our lives just whatever. It's just our normal life. That's just the way it is. But that's amazing that what is out there can be inside of me. I can be united with it. As we're going to talk about, we are made like that for one specific person, purpose. And that is to come to know God so that what, out, what is out there comes to be within me. Okay? When I know something, I reproduce the thing within my soul. I am one with it. What is truth then? How about what is error? Truth and error have to do with my reproduction of that knowledge, right? Oftentimes we talk about truth and error as, as far as spoken, but what I speak is always about something I know or think I know. All right? <laughs> So what is error? For information. Okay, so there's a thing inside me is what? Wrong. Not yeah, in comparison to? Reality. In comparison to reality. And when I know something is true, the thing that I have inside me is a correct representation of the thing out there. Okay, does that make sense? So we are always measured 
by the thing in reality. Okay, that's why truth is objective. It's not relative to me. Okay, because my truth is always based upon how things really are in the real. Okay? The real measures my knowledge. In a sense, you could say there's a pattern out there, and I'm going to measure my pattern inside me based upon it. And if it fits, I'm good to go. And that's truth. Okay? How does perception? What's that? How does perception work in here? Well, perception, I, I would say, is just that initial receiving of the information. I perceive the thing. Okay? Joseph Pieper says, We may generally understand mental perception and knowledge as a process whereby the mind reproduces within itself the external world. Okay? But God's knowledge is different. God's truth is different. Why? In fact, well, let's step back before we go to God. The truth of a thing... Is not always based upon my reception of it, but sometimes the truth of a thing is based upon how I perceive that it should be. And when is that the case? If I talk about a true statue or a true car, it resembles reality. Yeah, but the ideal. Good. And whose ideal is it? Yours, if what's the case? If what's the case? Somebody just said it. If you designed it. Only the designer, the creator of a thing, knows how it is supposed to be and determines its truth. Okay, I had a great example for that one time. I don't remember what it is now. Sorry. <laughs> but you know, if, if... Well, never mind. That's fine. That makes sense, right? So in creative knowledge, something is different. The creator produces the thing in his head, and the thing must conform to it to be true. Okay? And now we can go to God. Because God's knowledge is different, fundamentally different than our knowledge. How? It's not reproducing what? It, it's not reproducing reality. It is reality. He creates it. Yeah. Okay? We can say God literally is truth itself because He is the measure by which all things are measured. Because in Him, He knows what the thing is supposed to be. Okay? He is the pattern by which everything is patterned. God is truth. Hebrew goes on, he says, There exists beside and beyond non-creative knowing a specific kind of knowing that bestows on the objects thus known their respective being. And St. Thomas says, Created things from which our intellect receives knowledge give the measure to our intellect. Do you guys understand what that word measure? It's that pattern. Okay? By which, this, or it's the stamp by which the thing stamped is measured by. Is it a true stamp or a bad stamp? Okay, I take the stamp and I put it up to that imprint, and if it fits, it's good. Okay? Created things from which our intellect receives knowledge give the measure to our intellect. 
but they receive their measure from the divine intellect, in which all created things are as all objects of art are in the mind of the artist. Thus the divine intellect gives the measure and does not receive the measure, but created things both give and receive the measure. But our intellect in regard to natural objects is receptive of the measure and does not give the measure. It does this only in regard to artifacts, to created things, by created statue. Okay? God is true. The second attribute the Catechism goes to, the two attributes of God that we're basing all of our knowledge, his, his fundamental revelation of himself in the scriptures. God is truth and God is love. God is love. What is love? What is love? What's it like? You guys, we talk about, we use these words all the time. We never sit back and think of what they are. And we've got to start to do that. Because when we start to do that, we'll start to understand more about reality and more about God himself. So what is love? It's a state of union. On one level. A state of union? Okay. And in that way, in some sense, it's related to knowledge. Okay? Charity. Caring. Charity, okay. What's that? Caring. Caring. Okay. What else? Infinite. Selflessness. I mean, there's a, you know, there's give and take, but ideally it's not you, it's all about. Yeah, we're reminded of what, of what, yeah, yeah, sorry, yeah. of what teaching in scripture from our Lord. Love thy neighbor. What's that? Love thy neighbor. Love me. Love me. First John 4, 7, 8. Okay. First John 4, 7, 8. It was in today's readings. Okay, what does it say? <laughs> Multiplication. I am in no. the Father, and the no. Father is in me. And... No. But it's No. Why not? Yes. <laughs> no, this is Samaritan woman, yes? It's just before that. Chapter 4, you're saying? First John. Oh, first John. Yes. Oh, first John. In the epistle. Okay, who's got it? First John, if you go to the book of Revelation and you go backwards, that's the best way to find it. Okay? Go to the book of Revelation and go backwards. Chapter 4. Okay, don't read it yet. We'll read it together. Verse 7, you're saying? Yes. Okay. Right. Yeah. All right, there you go. All right, go ahead. The love of us, okay. love one another, for love is of God, and he who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. Keep going. In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that he might live through him. In this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be expiations for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No man has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. Okay, there you go. God is love. 
Okay. We're still facing the question of what is love? What is it? Total communion. Total communion. Gift of self. Uh, the gift, the gift of self, which Melanie was talking about. There's a phrase our Lord uses. What is it? No greater love, love, love than any man than that he lay down his life. They lay down his life for his friend. Okay. Turn real quick to the Catechism, 1766. Yeah, paragraph 1766. Wow, we went really fast. Anyway. Just kidding. Don't read it yet. 1766. That's what I, I told you. The good of the other. That's right. Okay, read it for us. Well, there's ways to love is to will the Nice and quick. Nice and um, To love is to will the good of the other. All other affections have their source in the first movement of the human heart towards the good. Only the good can be loved. Passions are evil if love is evil, and good if it is good. Okay, sustain, or to love is to will the good of another. To will the good of another by, as our Lord says, yeah, giving something, or he says that's the greatest, but ultimately, finally, giving something of yourself for the good of the other. Desiring their good. There, and we talk about good, again, we meet these words that we talk about all the time. We're talking about perfection. We've talked about that before. Willing the perfection of the other, its ultimate goal, its ultimate end, what God made it for. Okay? The giving of self. As our Lord says, no greater love hath any man than to lay down his life for his friend. Why is there no greater love than this? That's right. He was exactly precise in his words. There is no greater love because if love is the gift of yourself to another, what else, what else is left to give? That's it. And the scriptures tell us that God is love itself, which means that God in himself from all eternity is a gift of himself to another. Okay, we're starting to get into something, as you can see, of the revelation of what ultimately we will see in Jesus Christ—a relationship of persons within God. That ultimately God is a gift of Himself, a gift of love, and when He gives Himself in love to creation, it's a pouring forth of the love which He has from all eternity. And now we participate, or we enter in, or we receive what God is. When God loves us, we receive the life of the Holy Trinity within us. Because the life of the Holy Trinity is a life of giving of self to another. The next question that the Catechism goes to based upon this, is asking really, as we are asking what, first of all, in nature, what do we mean by God? 
What do we know from Scripture? That He's one, that He's true, that He is love. Okay? And walking down the, the, the creed, we find out also that He's what? I believe in... I believe in one God, the Father. Okay? Why is that placed in there, this revelation of God as Father? How do we know that God is Father? Ah, that's good. But you missed a whole part of the Bible. How did Israel know that God was Father? Did they know that God was Father? Did they consider God as Father? They did. Okay, and how did they know that? Because he made us. He was father in relation to who? What did, the, what did Israel understand? God is father in relation to who? Not in relation to Jesus Christ. Israel. Yeah, in relation to Israel. God's son, or God's children, was the nation of Israel. But even before that, revelation of God is father. All the way back to what book? Genesis. Genesis, of course. We always have to go back to Genesis. Open to Genesis chapter 1. Chapter 1, verse 26. You guys don't like the past? Just kidding. I'm just kidding. I know you have to come. Bye. 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 Did she get some chocolates? I should give her chocolates next time. All right. Genesis chapter one, verse twenty-six. Who wants to read for us? I'll read. All right, Jennifer, go ahead. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the okay. earth. Okay, God is made, or man is made in the image and likeness of God. Okay, say great. What's having to do with anything? What does it mean to be in the image and likeness of another? Hmm? What does it mean that man is made in the image of likeness? we got to figure this stuff out, guys. Otherwise, we're going to know who we are. That's partially true. That's partially true. But turn to Genesis chapter 5. To be in the image and likeness of the other in biblical language is to be? No. Chapter 5. Chapter 5, verse 1. This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them. And he blessed them and named them man when, he cre when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he became the father of a son in his own likeness after his image. For the Jews, what did it mean to be in the image and likeness of another? To be a son. And by understanding that, we also begin, begin to understand that being made in the image and likeness of God is to be made a son of God. Already in Genesis, 
with man, we find out that God is Father. Okay? Ultimately, we're going to find out the reason why God is Father and why we are made in His image and likeness as sons is because we are a reflection of who He is. Okay? We are a reflection of who He is. And God in Himself from all eternity is Father and Son. And when He makes man in His image and likeness, we have a revelation of Father and Son. Does that make sense? Okay? With that, we can start to see, as we're going to look at it more, we can start to see how important the image and likeness is. We can start to see also how important all of creation is. Because it's here in creation that God begins to reveal himself to us. And if we can open our eyes to creation, we will learn who God is. Because we are made in his image and likeness. Look at yourself. Look at your relationships that God has placed in our hearts. And you will see a revelation of God himself. Okay? Exodus chapter 3. We find out a little bit more about God. A little bit more, very little. You remember when Moses... Oh, we're having a great exodus here. <laughs> we're talking about Moses, let's see. When Moses comes to, to Sinai for the first time, he sees the burning bush, and he argues with God. He says, don't send me back to Israel, they won't believe me. He says, don't worry. He says, no, don't do it. And this whole argument back and forth, it's kind of funny. What does God say? Um, let's start with verse, uh, well, verse 7. Yeah, why not? Verse 7. Jennifer, go ahead. Then the Lord said, I have seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land, out of that land to a good land and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Persites, and the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have seen the oppression with, with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you the Pharaoh. I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring forth my people, the sons of Israel, out of Egypt. Okay, skip to verse thirteen. Then Moses said to God, If I came to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall you say to them? God said to Moses, I am who am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Can you imagine that? <laughs> it's like, you know. Come on, give me some more, give me something, some sketch later. Alright, turn back to uh, your paragraph 206. Paragraph 206. God's kind of playing with Moses there, I think. Paragraph 206. I mean, seriously, was it, who sent you? I am who I am sent me. What? I mean, we're still saying what to that, are we? Like, yeah, you take any theology class. What? In the end, at the end of the semester? Who knows? Okay. Chapter, uh, paragraph 206. Go ahead, Melanie. You guys just feel like two go-to people. Okay. 
In revealing his mysterious name, Yahweh, I am he who is, I am, I am who am, or I am who I am. God says who he is and by what name he is to be called. This divine name is mysterious, just as God is mystery. It is at once a name revealed and something like the refusal of a name, and hence it, is, it better expresses God as what he is, infinitely above everything that we can understand or say. He is the hidden God. His name is ineffable, and he is the God who makes himself close to men. Okay. So this initial revelation of himself to Moses reveals something of him. And there's been many things written on this topic. But ultimately, he says, I'm the existing one. Okay, I'm above all of your concepts. Okay? But we do know something of him, as we've seen in his revelation itself. Turn to Matthew chapter 11. Matthew chapter 11. I think you ordered the wrong tables. I haven't ordered the tables yet. Oh. How do you know that? Oh, we need, was to, we need a little space. You need more space. <laughs> more, wait, wrong chairs or the wrong tables? No, no, no. I thought you said you were getting this little narrow table. For just these ones up here. A little narrow. Because see, this is not used. Yes. So we're going to cut that off. Well, it's just going to be more narrow. But you're still not going to get a table where you're at. You got to come earlier. All right. That's right. Matthew chapter 11. Matthew chapter 11. We've got to get to this section, so let's go fast. Chapter 11, verse 25. You there? At that time, Jesus declared, I thank thee, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that thou hast hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to babes. Yea, Father, for such was thy gracious will. All things have been delivered to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden light. All things have been delivered to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father. In the person of Jesus Christ, we get for the first time a revelation, not just of the relationship of God the Father and His creation, but of God the Father and God the Son. Okay, turn to John chapter 1, verse 1. John 1, 1. If you have been attending the Trinity Mass, you should know this by heart. In the beginning was the Word. Keep going. And the Word was God. Okay? This revelation of Jesus Christ as Son and His Word, as the divine Word and the divine Son, in a sense blows out, blows apart our entire concept in the Old Testament of sonship. Because to this point in the Scriptures, sonship was simply a creator-created relationship. A creator who very much cared about his creation. But with the revelation of Jesus Christ, we can understand, as I said before, 
that we are made in the image and likeness of a God who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That our image and likeness is based upon who God is from all eternity. And that when we are recreated in the image and likeness of Jesus Christ through baptism, we begin to participate in the divine life of the Trinity. Baptism opens our heart to stand in the place of the Son, to stand with the Son, and receive from God all things, as we read in Matthew chapter 11. At that time, verse 27, all things have been delivered to me by my Father. All things have been delivered to me by my Father. Okay? Which brings about our next point that we have to deal with. We're dealing with the, Son, the, the Holy Spirit and the Son very quickly because we've got a whole other class on both of those. Okay? All things have been delivered to me by my Father, which includes what? We're almost done, don't worry. Which includes what? The gift of Mark? Yeah, the gift of the Holy Spirit. That Jesus Christ, the Son of God, has received all things that are the Father's. He has given them all to Him. Okay? And that includes the Holy Spirit. Turn to your catechism to... um, Oh, no, not the catechism yet. Sorry. John chapter 15. Turn to John chapter 15. Almost done, don't worry, just give me five minutes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we've heard that before. John chapter 15. Verse 4. Chapter 15, verse 4. But I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told you of them. I did not say these things to you from the beginning, because I was with you. But now I am going to to him who sent me. John, I'm sorry, 16. Sorry. Sorry. I didn't see the 16 on the bottom of the page. 16 verse 4. But I have said these things to you, that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told you of them. I did, I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you, but now I am going to him who sent me. Yet none of you ask me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your hearts. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the counselor will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. In the creed, in the Nicene Creed on Sundays, we say that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. We're concluding this point, I promise. But if you come to the church I go to, the Melchite Church, and you say the Creed, you will say that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father. Period. Mm, Mark came in tonight very upset and says, are you a heretic? We didn't quite say that, but that was your intention. <laughs> what do you really believe? We're the Easterners. <laughs> yeah, we don't have the same creed that you have. Why? <laughs> Turn your catechisms to uh, paragraph 245. 
section on the Holy Spirit is dealt with by Constantinople, by Constantinople in 381. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son. Wait. Oh, it didn't say it there. In the Roman, in a catechism produced by Rome? Ooh. By this confession, the church recognizes the Father as the source and origin of the whole divinity. But the eternal origin of the Spirit is not unconnected with the Son's origin. The Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, is God, one and equal with the Father and the Son, of the same substance and also of the same nature. Yet He is not called the Spirit of the Father alone, but the Spirit of both the Father and the Son. God the Father has given all things to His Son. So why is it that in the Catechism it stops with Father, period? Tell me, historically, why is it stopped there? Because that's how it was written. That's the original text. The reason I want to point this out to you is because the creed, as I said, is a summary. It is not explicit every aspect of the faith. And again, when we read the creed, we are looking into the mystery of God. It's helpful to not just have the creed, but to have the Catechism. Not just to have the creed, but to have the scriptures. Not just to have the creed, but to have all the different creeds that have been written by the church. All looking at different aspects of God, the mystery of God. There will be more creeds written in our life and after us. All attempting to get at the divine mysteries. Okay? When the creed was originally written, in the original Greek, it stops... The, it proceeds from the Father. That's all it says. Okay? Partially because of the historical situation that it was dealing with. Okay? I'll give you the quick history of it, real quick. In the 5th century, in Spain, a particular heresy came up, a Manichaean heresy, which divided the person of Christ, human and divine. Okay? Looking down upon the human person, or down upon the material world, I should say. And therefore said it was not possible for the immaterial spirit to proceed from a man, the man Jesus Christ. And to combat this heresy in Spain, the church in Spain introduced this phrase, the filioque, we call it, and the son in Latin, filioque, and the son. Okay? In Spain. The council that introduced this in Toledo was confirmed by the Pope, but the Pope at the time told the church in Spain not to use that in the creed. They are not to change the creed. And only after a few hundred years was that addition, because it continued to be used to combat this heresy, only after a few hundred years was it introduced into the whole of the Western Church, or the Roman Church, as that heresy spread it was dealt with in other areas and finally introduced into the liturgy itself. Okay? In the 8-900s. What else was going around in the 900s? A beginning of a division between the East and the West. The problem was that heresy 
at that time wasn't being dealt with in the East, and so that introduction to the creed wasn't necessary. And it never happened. And so to this day, when you attend an Eastern church, you say the ancient creed. Okay, without that introduction, without that addition, okay, it is also a point which divides now the Orthodox from the Roman Catholics and from the Eastern Catholics too. Okay, because we hold a common theology with you. And so it still divides the East and the West. It's important to understand that. We'll conclude with a paragraph which will show us that understanding it from both ends, the East and the West, will highlight the mystery. Okay, that we don't just simply read just the creed, but all the aspects which come into it, looking at it from different angles. Paragraph 248. Paragraph 248, I promise, I'm not saying after this. At the outset, the Eastern tradition expresses the Father's character as first origin of the Spirit by confessing the Spirit as He who proceeds from the Father. It affirms that He comes from the Father and through the Son. There it is. By understanding the East and the West, we understand that God, the Father, is the origin of all things. And all things which the Father has, He gives to the Son, and they come through the Son as a gift to us. Okay? Getting at that mystery. The Western tradition expresses first a consubstantial communion between the Father and the Son by saying the Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. Filioque. It says this legitimately and with good reason. For the eternal order of the divine persons in their consubstantial communion implies that the Father as principle, as principle without principle is the first origin of the Spirit, but also that as Father of the only Son, He is with the Son the single principle from which the Holy Spirit proceeds. This legitimate complementarity, provided it does not become rigid, does not affect the identity of faith in the reality of the same mystery confessed. Providing it does not become rigid, we stand before the mystery of God. Okay? Alright, next class is next Tuesday. Do me a favor, scan all that stuff we covered tonight, okay? And go to the section on the sun if you can. If you have a compendium, the little book, no, I think, oh, we're sold out over there. If you have a compendium, it'll make it a lot easier for you to get the general, we have two more, okay? To go through those sections in a more condensed form, okay? Let's conclude in prayer. I'm sorry for keeping you guys late. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. As it was in the beginning, is now, and shall be, for all of St. John the Beloved, I pray for us. And 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 I pray for us. And